This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I had some notion, because I had sort of heard it in popular culture, that, you know, art comes out of pain. And when you're young, especially, the temptation is to think that means you've got to be in pain or at least pretty sad when you try to make art. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized that, no, I needed to be happy to write. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking with Shane McRae, who has four poems in the autumn 2021 issue of the Review. Shane McRae is the author of seven poetry collections, including, most recently, Sometimes I Never Suffered and The Gilded Auction Block. His forthcoming book is Cain Named the Animal, which will be published in April by Corsair in the UK and FSG in the US. Hi Shane, thank you very much for joining us. We'd like to start the podcast with a poem, so perhaps you could read The Fungus Called Dead Man's Fingers? I would love to. This is The Fungus Called Dead Man's Fingers. It's true, the fungus does look like a dead man's fingers. Look at a picture of the fungus, if you don't believe me. Or a dead woman's, it's true. If how we think the dead man died was he was murdered, and he reaches from the heart of the earth imploring, or it might as well be the heart of the earth, six feet below the surface for how clear the grave is when I try to picture it, how clear the heart where men lie is if he was killed by love, once love, said it was love, not the love that packed the body in the heart of the earth, not the last love that informed or instigated the concern to see the body buried, to see the gray cheeks blushed before the grave wench married it to the earth not the love at the beginning of the chain of undoing being love waving at itself and us of the chain of not revivifying but of gesturing toward life of burying love but a love that hides in the crowd at the funeral its face small like the face of a boy cross-armed sitting in a plastic chair in the hall outside the murmuring door with the boy who punched him, small but powerfully alone now, how a boy will use his wound to make his way in the world, like an impossible omnidirectional red carpet now unfurling backwards through time, from the theater to the limo, from his future loves to his eyes swollen shut. If we imagine it was love that killed the dead man, said it was love, whose fingers reach from the heart of the earth toward you. The dead man is a woman and you know her. I love this piece. It's got this really gothic vibe to it. The fingers reaching from the heart of the earth and the unfurling red carpet. And I was thinking of Edgar Allan Poe and Oscar Wilde, that for each man kills the thing he loves, and Toni Morrison. And the way it starts with this small observation about the name of the fungus and opens out into a meditation on love and death. I guess I'd ask just first of all, if you could say a bit about how the poem sort of came into being. You know, I like Toni Morrison especially. I have to admit, I was probably, not probably, I know I was thinking of uh, Keats's This Living Hand, which uh, I tend to be thinking of a lot when I'm writing poems. There's a lot of references to it. I don't remember exactly what I was doing but in some context or other, I just heard about the fungus. I'm sure I saw something about it online. I went to look it up. I discovered that it looked sort of horrifically like a human being's fingers. And that just got me writing. You've got these lines, how a boy will use his wound to make his way in the world, which I thought was really beautiful. 
And it made me think about poetry and the way a poem can be seeded, as it were, from a wound, a sort of a psychological wound. I guess the success of such a poem could be seen as someone using their wound to make their way in the world. It made me think also of the famous Adrienne Rich poem about Marie Curie. She died a famous woman denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. And I think you wrote in your first book, Imagine Welcoming the Wound. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about this relationship of wounds turned into power. I suppose I must. Um, A thing I have been discovering lately is that in order to be available to the writing of poems, I have sort of cultivated a mind too fine to be violated by an idea, except um, it's not really all that fine. It just doesn't have ideas. And so I, I find that I don't, I don't think about these sorts of things a whole lot. But partly with regard to this particular issue, this idea that wounds are a source of power, I know that when I was uh, younger, when I was, I suppose, a teenager, but also probably in my 20s, and I was in some sense, I mean, one is always still... Um, beginning with poetry, but I was beginning, beginning with poetry. I had some notion because I had sort of heard it in popular culture that, you know, art comes out of pain. And when you're young, especially the temptation is to think that means you've got to be in pain or at least pretty sad when you try to make art. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized that, no, I needed to be happy to write. And so I do think that a lot of what seeds art And so in this sense, at least as far as art is concerned, power, what seeds art, a lot of it is wounds, but you have to have this very strange relationship with your woundedness, I think, in order to make art. You have to be able to step back from whatever particular wound you're working with, uh, writing about or writing through in order to make the art. You have to sort of view it objectively in a sense or as objectively as you possibly can, which means that you have to essentially find a position from which even if you're writing about something that was at the time very painful for you, you are nonetheless feeling the joy of making, which is a very strange position to be in. There's Robert Frost's adage, no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. You also have to, even while you are allowing yourself to experience the joy of making a thing, you also have to be able to recognize you know, what the emotional resonances of the thing that you have made are. So you have to somehow both experience joy, but also recognize where the tears are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You essentially have to figure out how to be very, very clinical about all this stuff. I do think wounds are very often sources of power, you know, including, as we've been talking about, the power to make things. But um, I also think it is very difficult to utilize one's power in the midst of one's feeling of woundedness. Wow, that's a really fascinating answer. And I think a great way of thinking about this kind of complex question, because it's such a persistent idea or subject, this kind of link between pain and art. Since you sort of talked a bit about changing feelings about the whole thing from being younger to older, I'd be interested to ask how you began to write poetry. I read a piece in which you talked about first encountering Sylvia Plath and how that catalyzed something for you. I love hearing about the sort of foundational moments for writers. I know it's a question we get asked a lot, but I think it's always interesting to hear what what they were. The anecdote to which you're referring, or the event to which you're referring, occurred when I was in the 10th grade. I was, I guess I had just turned 15. And by that time, I had essentially dropped out of life, whatever that means for a child, 
when I was in the sixth grade and it never really and it never really dropped back in. I had stopped passing school, etc. I was just no longer interested. And so by the time tenth grade rolled around, that's like you know more or less four years of having dropped out. I had no vision for what my life would be. I couldn't imagine a future at all. And I certainly could imagine what my place in it would be. Um, and then one day uh, I saw this movie in which um, I think it was part of a campaign to um, help prevent uh, teen suicides that the government must have been um, involved in at the time, the federal government. There was a movie in which a student, a teenage boy, had killed himself. And at a sort of climax of the film, his sister delivers something like an address to the school, though she's been forbidden to do so, about her brother and the, the dangers of teen suicide. If I remember it, I don't remember it well. In the midst of that, she read Sylvia Plath's Lady Lazarus, not the whole poem, but she did include the lines, dying is an art uh, like anything else or everything else. I never remember which. I do it exceptionally well. I thought it was wonderful um, because I was an aspiring goth at the time, always an aspiring goth. I don't know that I ever gave that up. And... Um, it very quickly, writing poems, I mean, my poems were terrible. The day that I heard that bit, I wrote eight poems, the first of which was called Death is an Art, not Dying is an Art. And it ended with the line, and the artist is me, which is terrible. And every, every poem I wrote that day was terrible. But I think because I had nothing else going on, I kind of kept at it. And because I got a lot of encouragement from people who must have known the poems were terrible, but also must have known that I had no other plans. I got encouragement from uh, teachers, and I just sort of kept doing it. And in about a year, I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. Well, what a wonderful starting point. It's a very like hitting the ground running beginning. It seems as though you're an incredibly prolific writer. You seem to have kind of carried on at that same pace. I think by my calculations, you would have published something like eight books in 11 years, which by anybody's reckoning is a lot. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about your writing process. How do you manage to write so much? Do you write every day? Are you writing multiple poems at once? And yeah, how does it all work, basically? When I was in graduate school, getting my MFA in poetry, I wrote what at the time was a very typical American poem, this sort of free verse poem that was kind of funny. This was um, 2002. Kind of funny, free verse, lightly surreal, very post-Ashburyan poem. And that was all I wrote. I had been writing some metrical poems when I was an undergraduate, and I wrote a few, I probably, when I was getting my MFA, I don't really remember. But it was mostly that free verse thing. When I graduated, I graduated in 2004, I went to get my uh, second graduate degree. I met Jory Graham, because I, I guess I, I went to Harvard, and I uh, met Garth Greenwell. And through my interactions with them, I came to understand something that I had kind of already known but was unwilling to admit, and that was that the poems I was writing Maybe they were competent in some way, I don't know, but they, I don't think anybody really liked them. I was missing something. And so I decided to abandon the way I had been working and just sort of reverse everything. I got rid of the free verse, got rid of the punctuation, stopped trying to be funny, changed my syntax. And suddenly it felt as if I was writing the poems I had always been meant to write. And one of the consequences of this, in tandem with that feeling, was that I could write all the time whenever I wanted to. It meant also that I was writing two or three poems a day when I found the time to do it. There's something about the mode that allows me just a lot more freedom than I than I had before, uh, even though it's also very strictly metrical, etc. I mean, I, I don't know how it works, because before that I had only, when I was writing those free verse poems in grad school, I would be lucky if I wrote a poem in a week. 
but since then I I've had a lot more access to writing. And so I guess I can only recommend that everyone abandon the way they've been writing and see what happens if they do it a different way. How did the transition from free verse to form was it a very conscious decision or because I saw that you'd written at some point on Twitter and sorry to quote a tweet back at you you couldn't imagine writing free verse so but you obviously had in the past written it and then you've completely switched now because I'm the opposite I I'm very unformal and really would struggle to recognize (laughs) form sometimes I'm interested in how that transition occurred, like in the brain even. Did lines always come to you now metrically or do you Mm -hmm. sort of impose that afterwards? Oh, no, no, no. They always uh, come metrically. I don't, at least as far as poetry is concerned, lines that are not in a regular metrical pattern do not occur to me ever. And that's one of the reasons why the tweet would say more or less, I can't imagine writing free verse because I actually can't in my brain figure out how to do it. Like it, it wouldn't work if I tried. And I think it's a transition toward which I had worked for years. I mean, I'd studied a lot of metrical theory when I was an undergraduate. I was blessed to sort of be in a kind of isolated place with regards to the poetry world. And so I didn't really have a lot of people telling me what I should or shouldn't read. And that meant that I was able to cultivate a love for kind of everything. One of the earliest poets I fell in love with, you know, sort of on my own was like Susan Howe. But also I was very interested in like, Uh, 16th and 17th century poetry. I didn't think there was any poetry that I shouldn't be writing because of particular aesthetic commitments. Even while I was writing Favors as an undergraduate, I was also trying to write metrical poems and I was studying that a lot. And so I was, I guess, in a fairly rudimentary way, equipped to make the transition. So it wasn't difficult. It's funny because I I guess I would say that the form in your poems isn't maybe it's not kind of overt. So it's not like you sit down and you, you're very clearly aware straight away that you're reading a sonnet or what have you, which is maybe a good moment actually to ask you to read explaining my appearance in certain pictures. Sure, I'd be happy to. And yeah, that um, maybe that is a good moment. It is, in fact, uh, it is a sonnet. Okay, explaining my appearance in certain pictures. In pictures now, I do not smile and didn't then I would laugh if I was being tickled, and sometimes one, my mother's mother, would tickle me, and the other would take the picture, my mother's father. And so sometimes I'm not smiling, but I'm laughing, my eyes closed and my mouth open, almost like I'm screaming, but I'm laughing. When I was a child, in pictures with my kidnappers, with one, my mother's mother, always her. I'm sitting most often in her lap. Her arms around my blurred waist, she has me on Ritalin, and the trick is wait until the laughing stops. As the mouth closes, you can take the smile. Thank you. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the poem is a sonnet. You wouldn't necessarily spot that at first glance, at least I didn't. It's a kind of expanded sonnet and there's like spaces between each line and some kind of caesuras within the lines. But it struck me that the form kind of illuminates the content in some ways in that the containedness of a sonnet in some senses maybe makes one think of the photograph that you're describing, which is sort of a a square contained space. But then as the poem is talking about, there's this sinister and misleading quality to the photograph that's being described. Is the form mirroring that misleadingness in some way? The idea that it's not... Obviously a sonnet, in some ways, I suppose, is on purpose. I love formal poetry, but I, I didn't want to write a kind of poetry that was sort of 
in that regard, off-putting to a, an initial reader. People tend to make their minds up about what they're looking at, and that can affect how they read it. I tried to present it on the page in a way where it's just sort of not obvious that that's what's happening. And also, early on, when I was working on my first book, I developed this idea that what mattered about a set form, like a sonnet, with regard to the sort of meeting the requirements of the form, besides the you know traditional requirements, the particular rhyme pattern, etc., the octave, the sesta. For me, what mattered was also, you know, if a sonnet is a 14-line poem and iambic pentameter in the sort of very basic definition, because obviously there are other, other versions of it, that means, you know, iambic pentameter, five stresses per lines, 14 lines, 70 stresses per poem. The base of, of the poems is basically always iambic. As long as by the time I get to the end, I've gone through 14 lines and have added up to 70 stresses, some lines can be shorter than others. So that if you look at this poem, the last line is long on the page because some lines before it were shorter. But if you count the stresses... In the iambic pattern, it adds up to 70 stresses over the course of the poem. That allowed me, when I first developed that idea, a little bit more freedom to uh, do things with my lines while still satisfying my definition of a metrical poem. But as far as the form having to do with the content, I mean, I think about this a lot, but probably in a sort of broad way. I would like to think I would be sensitive enough, but who knows? I would like to think, however, that I would be sensitive enough to be aware if the form and content were clashing. And because I've written so many sonnets, it is inevitable that when I write one, my thinking about how the form works informs what I say. And I think you're right. It's A sonnet is a good space in which to have a subject that is sort of, in some sense, maybe deceptively closed or that there's some hiding going on. I think the sonnet is a good form for that. I think that the form and the subject are working together, at least I hope they are. In terms of writing a sonnet, I'm just thinking that sometimes a sonnet can sneakily emerge in terms of you're writing a poem and you don't actually realise you've written a sonnet and then you see that you have. Does that happen to you or are you always like, I'm writing a sonnet from the word go? I'm not writing it from the word go, but I would also say that it would be impossible for me to write one and then realise I've written one. Because, you know, I'm having to count stresses, I'm working with a rhyme pattern, I'm figuring out how the parts are fitting together. So it's difficult to think about a poem in that way and sort of be surprised by it ending up being X form or Y form. That said, plenty of times I've had poems sort of dictate what kind of form they're going to be in. I have had an inclination toward writing sonnets for a long time, possibly since I was an undergraduate, again, broadly speaking, just because that was sort of when I discovered that they're kind of an apprentice form, at least historically they have been. And because I think of myself and have for years as if I'm lucky, at best an apprentice at poetry, I find it presumptuous to aspire to more difficult forms. And also I, I enjoy writing them. And so I do kind of assume that I'm probably going to write one, you know, when I sit down to write a poem. But at the same time, I want to write other things. I mean, every other poem of the four is in a different form, of the four in the journal that is, or in the issue. But I do enjoy writing sonnets. I'd read somewhere that you had said that you're you're not as interested in your autobiographical work. And I suppose um, the poem that you've just read and the second in the issue far past the end, as I understand it, might fall into that category. I suppose I wondered what it is that feels different about writing autobiographically than otherwise. I guess when a poem is responding to an event that then needs to be talked about, there's something disheartening sometimes with having things always conflated to one's biography if it's anything to do with that or just a different experience of writing them that is less enjoyable or no i mean that does happen um it, it bums me out a lot i've had poems 
that I've submitted to journals that, you know, come back with critiques about the sort of autobiographical source that the person assumes they must have. And they, these are poems that are completely made up. And that always sort of bums me out. But the sort of assumption, uh, at least in the U.S., I think still is that you're, one is writing about oneself. I mean, I find myself specifically not interesting. I was going to say I don't find myself very interesting, but I mean, I live with myself all the time. It's the worst. I don't want to write about myself all the time, although, of course, I do sometimes, plenty of times, write about myself, and I have written a memoir. Um, but that's because the material is is to hand. But when you're writing about either something you're making up or a person or event from history, your imagination has more room to play, I think, at least for me. That may not be the case for everyone, but for me it does. Early on, at least, it was sort of a test because my second book is mostly about other people. It was a test to figure out if that was a thing I could even do. Because at least, again, in the U.S., one is so acclimated to this idea that you write from experience, etc. If I'm trying to write from an experience that is definitely not mine, it, at least at the beginning, it was frightening. I didn't know if I could do it. And I, I discovered, I don't know if I'm any good at it, um, because it's my own writing, so who knows. But I do enjoy it more. And I do find my imagination stretching more when I'm writing about other people. So it just feels generally more interesting. When I was writing the memoir, um, which is tentatively scheduled to be published early next year, Penguin is publishing it in the US, Canongate is publishing it in the UK. And even though it was about me, I did find that my imagination could stretch a bit because I was writing prose, which is something I've always been terrified to do. And so it meant that I was doing things differently. Had you written much prose previously or was it a kind of a, a relatively new venture? I've written plenty of short things and I've done some reviews, et cetera, when I've been asked, but it has always been something I haven't enjoyed doing very much. I did like writing the memoir, but I find prose intimidating. I know I don't know anything about it. I like reading it uh, a good deal, but um, it's something um, with regard to which, with regard to the making of which, I feel even more amateurish than I do with regard to the making of poems. It's quite sort of refreshing the way you talk about being an apprentice or not feeling like you're there yet as it were when you've obviously got so many books behind you already I was taken with these lines from your poem the tree of knowledge and sometimes I never suffered I think in which the hastily assembled angel says he hadn't ever really understood his job he knew it had to do with seeing which seemed to me almost like a description of what it's like to be a poet and I've sort of seen you in other pieces describing the process of sort of trying to write poetry and um, you'd said in an interview while I'm writing, I'm thinking about the poem I'm trying not to ruin or to ruin less, uh, which I thought was a, a nice way of putting it. And is this modesty or do you genuinely sort of feel that there's a kind of failure inherent in the writing of poetry and that you're always doing this dance between whether the poem is going to be a success or not? I don't think that the writing of poetry necessarily requires, uh, I don't think failure is an inherent part of it. For me, probably, yes, I think it is. But there are definitely, I would say that there are perfect poems. I would say that there's a maybe surprising number of perfect poems. If you think about somebody like George Herbert, he wrote a lot of perfect poems. It can be done. I wonder if George Herbert thought they were perfect. Probably not, but it's not up to him <laughs> um, to, do, you know, to make that judgment. I hope he didn't. I suspect that one of the one of the ways that he managed to do it was by not thinking he had done it. But I, you know, I do genuinely feel pretty bad at it. What keeps me going is the hope that maybe someday, if I live long enough, I will not be bad at it. And maybe the more that I do it, 
the better I get. I mean, I have fairly high standards, I suppose, and I know I don't live up to them. But also, I think this is true with most artists. Not only are you always trying to make the next thing, but you're always trying to make a thing that is in some sense fundamentally different from the thing that you do make. I think, at least with poets that I've, you know, I've read interviews and talked about, the poems often enough that you really love are poems that you yourself could not write, no matter what you did. You know, like Ivor Winters really loved Hart Crane's work, and Hart Crane, everything about his work was opposed to what Ivor Winters was doing in the latter part of his career as a poet. I think that's extremely common. You want to write a kind of poem that you kind of can't write. And so while I don't think failure is inherent to the making of poems, I do think a sense of one's failure is inherent to the drive to make poems. So one thing I really wanted to ask you about is the way in which your books kind of link together from one to the next. So you've got these sequences that kind of run across a number of books. I found this in a way slightly radical approach because, you know, one thinks of like a book as a sort of self-contained project that then is done and you start on the new thing. But in your case, it's, it's almost like it's a through thread that keeps on going. I mean, I guess in poetry, we don't very often get the way you might with fiction, like a trilogy or something that's like overtly billed as a trilogy. Given that this approach, sort of how do you know when a book is finished? That's a really good question. I think there's a lot of contradictory thinking about this, particularly right now, given the sort of publishing situation in the US, and I'm not entirely sure about how it works in the UK. You have a lot of, especially younger poets who have yet to publish their first book, who have what they consider to be multiple unpublished manuscripts. Whereas when I was writing my first book, because I got good advice from Katie Ford, I just put everything I had in it. Everything that I thought was worth being in a book at the time went into that book, as opposed to setting aside things for another manuscript. But after that, how I learned that a book was done became a little bit different. I think it's a combination of things. Partly, you know, you think, I do have enough poems to make a book, probably. And what that ends up making is a kind of skeleton. When you first do it, at least for me, when I first do it, I feel very excited. I'm like, oh, look, it's a book. I'm so pumped. And then I really can't judge whether it's any good. I delude myself into thinking it's okay. What that really is is the very, very first stage. And the thing that you're going to end up with is going to be really different from what you got at that very first stage where you're like, I have enough poems for a book. You have enough poems for a book. You put them together in a way that kind of makes sense. But then over the course of the next month's year, you are going to take things out and put things in and keep making it stronger and stronger. One hopes one is making it stronger until you get to a point where you kind of can't fiddle with it anymore. You know, if you're fortunate, your editor, your publisher says, okay, you can't make any more changes. Or, you know, it's when the book has been accepted, if it's a little earlier. From that point, you eventually will start working on the next book, I assume. But it it has to do with a first gesture of self-delusion. That is, I have enough poems for a book. And then a sort of productive panic because you have generated this thing that you call a book. You probably sent it to somebody. If you are very fortunate, again, maybe a publisher has taken it. And then you gaze with terror upon this thing that you've made that is really just a skeleton as opposed to a book that anybody would want to read. And you have all this panic-fueled energy, panic-fueled desperation, where you have to put better poems in it and make the thing better. And that tends to be how it works for me. And so um, I kind of need the approval of somebody. I need someone to say, this is okay, before I realize I've got a frame upon which to build. So that's how it works for me. I don't know how it works for other people. Um, I think if you have a more project-oriented way of thinking, and some of my books have been fairly project-oriented, 
it might be easier to tell when a book is done. Productive panic. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> good way of looking at it. Before we close, maybe one of the uh, either of the, the the two you haven't read, if there's one you'd prefer to read than the other, would be good to end on. I talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, every poem in this, uh, the four in the issue were in a different form. This one, in case anybody wants to know, three uh, stanzas rhyming X, A, X, A, so that the first and third lines don't rhyme. The first three lines of each stanza is iambic pentameter. The fourth line is trimeter. The other thing, which may or may not be interesting, is all the rhymes are extra syllable rhymes, so that the rhyme is on the first stress of a word, and then there's another syllable after that. Anyway, this is the Dead Negro in the Modernist Long Poem. To decorate your poems with our deaths, bodies of rivers being black flesh in water and bones in flesh, loosed from the threatening muscles, unknowable as laughter in rooms in which the laughter stops the moment you enter, where the faces are all faces of who will soon be dead, although they live dead in a poem and faceless, hanging from the tree of knowledge at the source poet of your childhood shame of the branched river it is a hanging tree where it begins of which you are the flower thank you so much shane it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today thank you for having me and for those listening just a reminder that you can read shane's poems in the autumn 2021 issue of the review thank you for listening the end We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.